This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. My name is Fraser Patterson. I'm the founder and CEO of Bolster. Uh, What I love about the real estate uh, industry is that we think we uh, create real estate, but I actually think real estate has created us. So I think the further back you go, the more our psychology, our society, our, uh, the relationships we have, the way we formed families, the, 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 the safety we have to become, and become creative and develop all the amazing things we have comes from actually having a home. Renovating your home or apartment shouldn't have to be a headache with extra costs and delays. What if your contractor not only guaranteed the price of your project, but also guaranteed that it was the best price with the help of innovation? You'll hear how that's possible. Plus, hear how too many women are missing out on a $50 billion home renovation market. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With real estate tech entrepreneur Thomas Kutzman and business development expert Scott Pollock. Fraser, thanks for joining us today. We're you know excited to have you here. And I want to get right into it and ask you something that's been on my mind about the whole construction industry and renovation process. You know, as as a consumer, there's a lot of you know choice out there when you look at you know marketplaces to go find a contractor. You know, how would you how would you describe the marketplace view of finding things versus a, you know traditional sort of contractor you contact directly? It's a good question, uh, and thanks for having me. Um, so. The, the marketplace model, obviously, you have greater choice, you have visibility into, in most instances, past work, um, you know, consumer reviews, etc. Versus the traditional model of finding a general contractor direct, um, which often you don't have visibility into all that aforementioned, you know, stuff. Um, I think in many ways, though, the marketplace model uh, does a little bit of a disservice to the individual professionals and often the homeowner because the problem is that their business model I think is quite flawed and that's because they're not trying to solve the problem downstream they're solving a marketing problem for the professional and they're solving a matchmaking problem for the consumer so what tends to happen is their business model is uh, we will we will we will aggregate the the, the demand we will then sell leads to the professionals and it's in their economic interest to sell those leads multiple times. And that creates a highly competitive environment that most professionals don't typically flourish in. And as a result, the consumer gets less information rather than more. They get less attention rather than more. Um, And I think that certainly from the professionals that we know and work with closely, that's not a good model for them. Um, so I, I think it actually can hurt both ways. And with uh, what you've created at Bolster, how would you define this sort of, you know, a consumer comes directly to you? How would you describe that sort of, you know, experience that's different than finding someone in a marketplace? 
So there is a lot of, um, there is the, the, the kind of illusion of choice when you go to a marketplace. And I think you'll find that the more heavily you vet, qualify, train, nurture, backstop a professional, the less illusion of choice is required. So when a consumer comes to us, when a homeowner comes to us, we, our algorithms tell us who is the best contractor, not as simply, you know, here's a choice and you go off and make your own determination. Um, certainly in the case of the architect where we're promoting the architect's um, portfolio of work, you know, love comes in through the eyes. It's, uh, it's very easy to show the, the architect's work um, and the different styles that they, they, they have in terms of like contemporary or transitional, traditional architecture. Um, but when it comes to the, the contractor, we're in a position to say, based on our understanding of the project, based on past projects, based on their current capacity, which is a, an important factor, can they actually take on the project and marshal the correct amount of resources to complete it on time and on budget as per our financial guarantee, for example. So the consumer gets a direct match um, and that's typically better than, a, than just a marketplace. If I come to bolster... How do you know what I want from an architect or a contractor? What is that algorithm and the process to define who's best for me? Sure. So we have a um, a qualification process that's uh, very intensive and just allows the consumer to talk uh, in a structured way, but in depth about their project, what they're trying to what what they're trying to achieve, their budget, um, the type of property, the uh, their aspirations for the home, um, lots of functional stuff. Is this a, like a checklist online or a so conversation? There's both. So there's both. There's online when they first come to our site and they go through this kind of auto, you know, self-qualification process as it were and discover, you know, things that they typically won't know about their project in terms of what it's likely to cost, uh, how long it's likely to take, what does it involve, do you require permits and so on and so forth. And then once uh, once they've got uh, to the to the end of that, they jump on a call, typically a 20-minute phone call with one of our specialists, and they walk them through further and learn more about the project and deep dive into what they're really trying to achieve. Have you guys found that there is a wide variety of, I want to say, archetypes of people and the types of uh, contractors and architects, et cetera, that they would want? So you've got people who are yeah, you know, looking for budget but high quality or people who are looking for you know, very uh, specific things? So we found that... Um, We've we've naturally uh, evolved into slightly higher end, so kind of $150, $200 a square foot and up. Um, that therefore matches you to a specific type of architect and a specific type of contractor. Um, eventually, we have much bigger aspirations to go downstream, but as with any new way of doing things and new technology, it, it takes time for the, the, the process uh, to, to fully bake and for the uh, I want to say that the process to automate to the point where it can do that. You got to start but, with the $90,000 sports car Tesla before you can release the $35,000. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're walking around with a huge brick like Motorola and before long you've got a smartphone that fits in your back pocket. So it's we're 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 targeting the higher end uh consumer, New York City. Um our average projects are about $350,000, $400,000. They range from about $100,000 all the way up to uh over a million. Uh, that's a $3 billion market just in Manhattan and Brooklyn, uh, which is wholly underserviced. Um, 
the, the consumer has no visibility into the process, what they're doing. Uh, cost overruns are rampant. Uh, the quality of work varies enormously. The quality of design varies enormously. Back to your point about... So we, if you're, if you're trying to revolutionize the, uh, the, uh, the restaurant experience, you'd be hard pushed to do it by being a chef, uh, by being a cook. You need to own the restaurant, own the supply chain, go to the farms. You have to brand the experience. You have to get the menu. So we initially started off just with the contractor and then it became the design professional too. Then it became redesigning the process. Um, so we've, we've, we've got to the point where we now have five types of consumer uh, that we, they're what you would call an ideal kind of qualified prospect. And they each have uh, their own requirements and we find that the biggest determinant, uh, we have our own four P's as well, which uh, we we found that the, there's a kind of quadrant and it's very much to do with flexibility of scope of work and flexibility with budget. So sometimes you'll have a consumer who's got a very inflexible budget and a very inflexible scope of work. That's more challenging. Um, and believe it or not, you, you often have the, you have the consumer that's got a very flexible budget and very flexible scope, which is also quite challenging. Um, so we found that somewhere those other two quadrants are, are really our kind of core uh, core customer, people who have got a fixed budget, but they're able to be slightly flexible on the scope of work and people who have got a very fixed scope of work, but they have some flexibility in their budget. Is a big part of the algorithm in that case just resetting people's expectations about how much they can get done within a given budget? Education. It's all education. And it's, it's a really fun process. We're actually at the moment uh, developing a series of on and offline resources to almost if you were buying a, a BMW and you've got your owner's manual, the details around how this process works to the to the nth degree of specificity because uh, we're dealing with a sophisticated homeowner. And as you are, if you're radically transparent in pricing and the methodology and why things are the way they are, they dig in even deeper um, because that, you know, to be truly transparent requires that specificity. So they really dig into this. So we found that being able to guide people right from the start in terms of, you know, believability and, and, and feasibility, um, and then go through that process of, of helping educate the consumer, helping them discover uh, what's in their, their best interest so they can make the right hiring decision. We've basically done everything we can to accommodate that. And that's what our process effectively does. It, um, we... Uh, do you want me to talk about that a little bit? Is that, can I, you know? I mean, if you, if you want to go into it, you're, you're more than welcome to. I understood we, maybe a deep dive, so. Yeah, uh, so uh, there's a, as it relates to sort of the transparency uh, point, a, a lot about a, a big transaction, especially when you're thinking about, a, you know, you mentioned $300,000, $350,000 renovation. You know, there's a big level of trust and confidence that mm. comes into that. It sounds like the transparency definitely helps with that. Um, but how, how do you go to the next step to really make people feel comfortable that you're not going to run over on costs? You're not going right. to run over on time. How do you, how do you deliver that sure. sort of, ex, you know, set that expectation? That's a great question. So, so it's, it's twofold. Um, one is, uh, the transparency, which lends itself naturally to specificity, which basically means is my project being planned properly? So when all the information unfolds in front of you and you have a sufficient amount of time for that information to unfold, so these are not fast transactions. You know, typically you have a few months lead time and design to lead up to the to the to breaking ground on construction. Um you have uh 
all of the architectural information, all of the pricing information fully broken out. Um, and what we do is uh, allow the the consumer to see the analytics around that. What did other people pay for the exact same thing in a certain neighborhood, in a certain type of property? Um, so they can take comfort knowing and seeing what other people have paid. So they know they're getting the right price. Um, and in terms of the accountability, so that's transparency. In terms of accountability, we are the first to invent a financial guarantee that is backed by major insurers in the country that effectively guarantee the completion of the project up to its full value on time and on budget. Uh, and we're now able to do that for free. So when we started out, that, again, that's a new, it's a very new thing. If you're building you know, a skyscraper, large development in New York City or across the country, in fact, then you're going to have performance and payment bonds in play naturally. Um, for the consumer who ironically is at the most uh, risk of a project going over. So uh, I think I might have mentioned before the average cost overrun in New York City on a project is 60%. So for every 100,000 you're spending, you're you're actually incurring an additional 60 that you were unaware of. That's, so that's, that's real money. Yeah, it's, it's real money and it's unplanned for money. So you didn't, you didn't you know plan to spend that money it's and and delays as well um you know anyone who's watched any sort of home flipping show on hgtv has seen you know the inevitable open up a wall there's mold inside mm -hmm. and so the idea of being apples apples and transparent about other people in cobble hill who did the same renovation spent x how do you account for those unknowns those things right. that you can't control for so with experience a contractor will know uh, or an architect, a design build professional would know the type of property, the type of fabric, what are the typical problems that that, that that property is likely to encounter and how do you diligence that in advance through probing and, and various other forms of, you know, investigatory work pre-construction. So, um, and what you'll find is if you, if you, in, in construction, the, the, the parable of, you know, you, you slow down to speed up. So, that's really slowing down before construction begins, which can be a challenge because most consumers are time pressured, uh, especially in New York. But I would say in general, they're time pressured. So there's a great kind of, um, t uh, you know, tension to or, or it, it's, it's, it's often very easy for the professional to just run into stuff. So construction is, if done properly, can be quite plug and play. But if you've done that diligence in advance, your, I mean, I can give you some data across all of our projects. Across all of our projects, we have a 0.1% cost overrun, which we absorb. So what I'm hearing is that HGTV is lying, that they're uh, they're surprised by the mold in the wall. They should be aware of it because most places are subject to the same types of surprises, quote unquote. There's definitely surprises. Uh, I never mean, expect I can, that from reality can, TV shows. Yeah, I can I can talk about reality TV shows as well. I think the 400 people off camera that you don't see helping that project complete and the millions of dollars that go into it and then the consumers surprise that they can't afford the same result in the same time frames. Um, the, there's definitely surprises. For example, if you're you know renovating in a co-op or condo here, it's not uncommon to find a gas pipe that even the building's architect was unaware was there in the plans. Um, but like I say, the, the frequency of those occurrences, if you're following a process like the one we've invented, those the probability of those is is, is dramatically reduced. They're they're not a uh, 
you know they're not a standard anymore they're 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 an exception um so like i say the the cost overruns are are negligible um and we absorb them we overrun by 1% on average time is a really interesting challenge in construction a lot of the time it's so if i can go back a little bit as to what the problem actually is with renovation if you if you're solving a kind of wicked problem like this so you know there's no agreeable definition of what the problem actually is everyone else in the in the process kind of disagrees with what the problem actually is so if you ask a homeowner what the problem with renovation is they'll tell you well contractors can't be trusted they overrun they they underbid and you know uh, you know the, and to win the job and then and then if you ask the the contractor they'll tell you well that you know the homeowner doesn't have sufficient experience in a project like this and it's a very difficult challenge to educate them and you know it's hard to estimate the cost and then the architect will tell you uh, you know uh, that the contractor can't build what they want to build and the contractor will tell you that the architect's design wasn't good enough no one agrees on what the problem is but what we found is there is just this natural tendency for projects to be under-resourced and so right from the start of a project you have this quite vicious bidding cycle that i think the marketplaces the that are discussed create help help to actually exasperate but in general what happens is the homeowner engages the architect the architect goes off and designs not necessarily to budget and that's a hard thing to do it's very hard to 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 design to budget to design anything to budget but so it typically start it typically goes something like this you have a half million dollar budget architect engaged typically it's about you know 50 60 70,000 in fees you get to the end of that process and you go out to tender to contractors the bids come back they typically come back around $900,000 this is just from all of our data across you know uh, you know all the projects that we've engaged in on New York City this, these are the kind of like you know typical numbers, and so that person comes in with a five hundred thousand dollar budget, and they're probably shocked to see yeah. double that in the actual. Quote. And, and on average, a consumer's budget is off by about forty percent. So if you think you're going to spend, you know, if you want, if you think your project's two hundred, it's probably more like two eighty, two ninety, and then by the time you finish, you will have probably changed your mind by a further ten percent. So you'll spend about three thirty, three forty. That's what we see across all of our projects. So. Um, but then what happens at the end of this kind of bidding stage where you start to start to engage with the contractors and you get that sticker shock is you start to value engineer backwards. You know, you want to all of a sudden there's this emotional turmoil. It's a terrible process where you have to, you know, let go of some, you know, major part of the project. And then you typically settle on, you know, a certain number around about the 600 mark. And then the contractor starts and then the change orders start and the cost overruns commence because there's just this vicious circle of the owner not necessarily knowing how much things cost, the architect having designed the project over over the budget, which makes it very difficult for the general contractor to be the one to come in and then say, well, you know, really we should have been involved in this process right from the beginning. Therefore, we would have been able to establish a more realistic budget, therefore, and stress tested it. Therefore, we would have designed in a way that my construction methods would have, you know, meant that we probably would have come in closer to budget. Therefore, I would now be doing a value engineering uh, process, which is very difficult for the owner to accept. So right from the start, that contractor is already shaving off overhead, shaving off profit, saying they can squeeze this, saying instead of a six-month project, they can, it'll still be six months, but 
they'll only charge you for five months of, of labor. And so right from the start, most projects are under-resourced. We find that's the problem. They're destined to fail right from the start before they've even begun. So what we do is bring all of that information up front in advance and show all parties, this is the, these are the, the, the variables you're dealing with. This is what, what, what we see time and time again. And here's the cost of doing it that way versus the cost of doing it this way. So we're now able to show on a per pro, you know, like for like that we save a homeowner about $59,000 on, on the, on, on, on the average project. Uh, and, and the same with regards to time in terms of what we say the time will be and what it actually is uh, versus the, versus the, the market. Yeah, no, this is a, yeah, this is a fantastic start. And, uh, you know, up next, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more on the, the variables that you're speaking of, how you help identify those variables, and to really dig into what the largest costs are that people expect. And uh, we'll be right back. estate is your business is presented by preview find out how smart home buyers get more with preview by visiting previewapp.com backslash buyer that's p-r-e-v-u-a-p-p.com backslash buyer keep up with the show on instagram and facebook at real estate biz show and with hashtag mouth media Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty details of uh, all the costs and variables, uh, you know, you've, you, Fraser, have been kind enough to uh, you know, bring a snack with us. We learn a little bit about you and you know, have an opportunity to sort of you know, break bread and get to know you a little bit, a little bit better. So uh, uh, what, uh, what is it that you uh, brought for us today? Okay, so... This is something that I grew up eating as a boy in Scotland. These are Yorkie bars. Uh, and the advertising for these was basically, you know, I think it was all about kind of big trucks and being a builder or being, you know, something like that. So, um, and these are naturally kind of breakable into many different, uh, you know, many bits. So I figured it was quite literally Does breaking. Break your teeth too? Breaking or? a form of bread. <laughs> well, this is raisin and biscuit. You should be safe there. This is an original not quite sure what I'm a uh, classic kind of a guy. Yeah. yeah We're going to toss that bad boy over here. Thank you, sir. You know yeah, I guess I'll go for the oatmeal raisin or whatever this is. So, uh, raisin biscuit. This is what essentially got you down the path of uh, the construction business. Is this candy bar from your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. This started it all. Got Nestle to thank it, for It reminds me of that scene from Ratatouille. When the film critic, the food critic comes in and takes the bite of the of the dish and he's flashing back to his childhood. This is it for construction. Thank you. Yeah, I think my dad introduced me to these. So very tasty. No, it's nice. A little bit and of, I was actually on building sites when I was a boy, like four years old. So my father was in construction, a developer. So I think these were actually eaten on sites a lot. Um and is that how you got into the business or did you get into to building later in life? I've tried everything to get away from building. Um, unsuccessfully. Keep, keep sucking you Every, back in. Yep, many different times. I, my father wanted me to go into you know, anything but uh, construction. So other side of the families in banking, finance. So I was maybe going to go down that path and chose not to. I became a, a carpenter uh, when I, I pretty much dropped out and became a carpenter. Uh 
so and then and then uh so so went to boarding school ended up a carpenter you know parents not very you know dad not very happy about that uh your dad wasn't happy about that even though you were uh, from a construction family yeah <laughs> yeah go figure uh <laughs> But for those that don't know, you have a degree in mathematics. So well, I, yeah, my so I in parallel I pursued you know uh, other my academic interests, yeah, mathematics, anthropology, um, and I just can't get away from construction, specifically home renovation. So when I became a when I became a carpenter, uh, I was actually working on a project for this really nice old couple in Edinburgh. So they're renovating this beautiful townhouse um, and a sandstone townhouse. And if you know what sandstone you know, looks like, it's you know, beautiful, big blocks of sandstone. And part of the way through the project, my boss, so I worked for this small kind of like carpenter outfit that were also a GC. And they managed to collapse the first floor landing of this home uh, by putting too much weight on the first floor and having insufficient like acroprops to support and all this stuff and almost killed someone in the process. And what happened afterwards is where actually this all began, which is the owners of the of the house, these these two women, were just perplexed as to, A, how does this happen? And B, what's the remedy? And of course, my boss at the time was saying, well, it's not really our fault. You know, how do we find a way out of this? Typical, like the classic kind of, you know, horror story right so this is um and so in the morning i'd like take them down from they, they they refused to move out of the house while the temporary stairs were put in place so they spent a couple of nights and i would help them down this ladder and we had tea in the morning i was the first on site because i was the youngest and they were just really confused by this why is this happening and this is what your boss is telling us and then in the van home at night my boss and his partners would be trying to figure out what other project can we like take money from or who can we blame this on were the acroprops perhaps you know you know you know bent somewhere or broken and therefore it's actually the the you know our, our subcontractor's fault and i was just like this is crazy how can something this substantial and important to a, to a family and to the fabric of you know real estate be just a hit or miss how can it be so random and so i think that's it, it got me kind of angry actually that really pissed me off that so that you... was the dynamic and then i just figured out wow this must be happening all over the place and so i got deeper into construction became a gc uh and learned it from all kind of sides of the transaction, just how pervasive this problem is. When we, when you look at the cost of a project, mm -hmm. ha, for someone that's not familiar with a renovation, what are what's the sort of percentage breakdown of what those costs actually go f go for? Sure, sixty forty is a good split for direct and indirect costs. So your direct costs are. Um, if we just talk about build, so don't architecture, you're looking at anywhere between 10 and 20%. We cap our architect fees at, at 15%. Um, they're done on a billable per hour basis, which we're able to forecast now quite accurately in advance. Um, but, you know, different qualities of architect require different hourly rates. So, um, but that's kind of the range. So if you were to take a, you know, average $400,000 project, um, you know, something like fifty, sixty thousand dollars of that is architect fees. And you typically have about ten to fifteen thousand dollars of fees that go into third parties compliance. So the Department of Building filing fees. You know, you're probably going to need HVAC specialist if you're doing that, or certain specialists, um, MEP, etc. Um, and then 
of the remainder of your construction budget, 60-40 is a really good split. So you're going to spend 60% on the kind of raw building materials and fixtures and finishes and equipment that actually go in and get installed and become part of the fabric of the home. And then you have, and those vary by project and also just by customer type, um, how much you're going to spend on sheetrock, pretty consistent. How much you'll spend on a kitchen or tile finish or, I mean, we've done everything from a $15,000 kitchen to, you know, $250,000 kitchens. So those range enormously. Um, definitely on the mechanical side, plumbing, electrical, uh, that's, that's, uh, that seems to have its, that has a specific price point. Seems, it seems like that would be pretty standardized just for the amount of wiring you need. So, so it's standard in the sense of if you're doing a complete gut and you need to, you know, uh, replace all those systems. Yeah. But the price point is, um, uh, there's, there's definitely room to get that down over time. Um, the 40% of indirect costs. So the important thing, and this is, and this is the stuff that is really, uh, an unknown to the, to the consumer to start off with. And believe it or not, it seems to be a bit of an unknown to a lot of the professionals as well as to how to actually quantify this and how to therefore articulate and communicate it to the consumer and the importance of it. So on a typical project, you have a, a few things in that indirect cost. The few buckets are, you're going to have the general labor, so labor on site, so that you can actually maintain a clean, safe site, handle curbside deliveries and whatnot. I mean, suppliers don't bring stuff into into the property when they deliver it. They, they drop it on the curb, has to be brought in, protected, maintained, especially if you're in a co-op or condo. You're going to have certain rules in your alteration agreement as to how the floors are, you know, protected and walls and elevators and stuff like this. So you need, you need a, a component of general labor throughout a project. You need project management and you need site management. They're two different things. They're often just rolled into one, but they're completely separate functions. It's the difference between a company having a CEO and a COO kind of distinction. So site management, on-site, daily oversight of trades, coordinating, scheduling. Otherwise, you end up, however many trades you have, that's how many projects you'll have if you don't have site supervision. Project management is everything that's going on to ensure the project is properly resourced, is on schedule, uh, a lot of the back-end functions, and so on and so forth. And then you have, so that's the kind of like, uh, I want to say like resources, right? Like manpower, it's probably a better term, manpower. Then you have insurances. So in New York City, you have workers' compensation and you have general liability insurance. Workers' compensation is paid on top of all of the uh, labor on the project, 17% is the, is the typical rate. Uh, that's essential. It's it's law for a start, but it's essential so that the consumer does not get directly in the way of claims made against employers of the contractor on site that then find their way back to the homeowner who could be perceived as being the employer if workers' compensation isn't in, uh, the correct workers' compensation isn't in place. Um, general liability is uh, th one of the strangest. Um, it is completely a world unto itself. There is only a few carriers that actually do it um, because of the risks involved in construction. They um, basically charge premiums in advance and charge premiums on premiums and have minimums. They will say to, to, to become a general contractor in New York City, you have to have general liability. It's typically 3% of revenue. 
So just to give you a sense of what you, as a consumer, what you should be looking for, if you have the correct, if your contractor has the correct liability insurance policy, which is not an artisanal policy like a carpenter, they actually have a general There's artisanal policies, like well, Jesus. There's, there's different, exactly. There's different policies because it implies what you can and can't do. So yeah. if you're a general contractor, you're tampering with fabric, you're tampering with the fabric of a building, uh, systems, mechanical, electrical. If you don't have that policy in place and you acting as a GC have an inferior policy and break through a pipe and it floods the neighbor downstairs and, you know, you know, soaks their Picasso, that, that, that claim from that owner downstairs will go right to the insurer. The insurer will uh, not pay because you're not supposed to be doing that work. The contractor will fold and it will find its way directly back to the homeowner. Does, so, does every contractor disclose all of these policies no. at a time of they, like, If negotiation? they're working in co-ops and condos, they kind of have to, but they don't disclose the cost of them. And when you don't disclose the cost of something and it gets baked, it so so one of the things we see is so so that's that's another one. So the general liability, and then finally overhead and profit, which is a huge controversial subject. Um, it's quite common that you will just get a price from a contractor that will say, you know, here's the here's the total price, or here's a breakdown, but the breakdown will be line item per line item, and it will talk about it might break it down into material and labor, but nothing else. Sometimes you get an overhead and profit. Sometimes you get insurance breakdown, but you don't. And the problem with all of this is, you know, what's profit? Profit's financial incentive. So if you're not financially incentivized, and this goes back to our financial guarantee, which holds us accountable for the delivery, which makes every dollar our dollar. So every dollar on a project is our dollar because it's dollar for dollar. So if it's a $500,000 project, we're $500,000 in if something goes goes wrong. The, 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 our insurers hold us financially accountable. On a typical project, that's not the case. So when the contractor says, oh, I, you know, I can do this for 2% profit and 10% overhead, if they reach any difficulty throughout the project and they're not able to be, you know, make a, a, a sensible return to sustain and grow a business, they typically go elsewhere to find a new project. And then you end up with the money from that project coming into this project. And then you're part of a wider kind of pyramid scheme. That happens... Very yeah. often. That sounds like a disaster. 20% of contracts, 19% actually, go under every year taking projects with them and taking, in New York City, it's about $700 million, the cost of that. And so, you know, shedding a light on all of that and having transparency is obviously an important element of, of improving the construction industry. You also referenced the uh, price guarantee. Mm -hmm. And how do you control the cost once you have a transparency to it? How are you guys actually controlling the cost so that you can guarantee that you're not going to overrun by more than I think you said 0.1 percent? Yeah. So the so so on the one hand we have a financial guarantee that uh, each project is backed by an insurer. The insurer holds us financially responsible for the delivery of the project according to the terms of the contract, which is a standard contract, standardized. They were built between us and the American Institute of Architects and our insurance partners. Um, very consumer friendly, uh, easy to read, plain vanilla contracts. We are accountable for delivering on budget, to schedule and to quality as per the, the, the terms of the contract. That means that we are we are we are saying we're a shareholder in your project. We're going to be held accountable for the delivery of the project. So therefore, what we do is we we have a little bit more time than usual. We have a defined process in advance that means that we know 
that we've scoped the project correctly, we've resourced it correctly, we've marshaled the right resources in the right sequence, and therefore delivery becomes a lot more plug and play than than the average kind of discovery process that your typical contractor uh, might 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 um, follow. And so what we're able to do with that, because we have this transparency in terms of how our bids are put together, which you can see these on brickunderground.com. So we actually have a section on Brick Underground, which is called the winning bid. So we show owners, you know, what does this particular type of project look like? Break it down, go into, you know, the whole story of how that project unfolded yeah. and the, all the costs broken down on a unit basis. Um, so we have so we have the transparency and what we say to to our to our consumers is this we have a list of the 20 best general contractors in Manhattan and Brooklyn they are they are they have been defined by our own internal kind of you know what what makes a good gc you know how long have they been in business what work are they doing they're very often the second bidder on projects that we win so we've we've seen uh the quality of their their information and the quality of their bid so we say to the consumer, we give you these 20 non-bolster GCs. They're just, you know, so that it's easier for you to go out into the market and find a good quality GC. Here's the ones that we we deem to be of, of good quality. Here's our bidding format. Here's the kind of transparency guidelines, as, as it were. If you have the contractor fill out the bid in this way, you will be able to compare like for like. And what we do is we say... If you can get a bid, if you get a bid from one of these contractors in this format and that contractor is willing to financially guarantee the results, so they're willing to be held accountable because one thing is saying, oh, I can do it for $50,000 less, that's fine, but can you do it for $50,000 less and be personally, financially liable for its delivery according to exactly what you have specified in this bid? Um, if you can, if, 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 if the owner... Um, wants to go down that 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 follow that process which gives them all the information they need and gives them confidence that they're give, being given being given everything they need in order to make the right hiring decision then we will beat that uh contractor's price by a thousand dollars so it's a true like for like in terms of transparency and accountability we beat it by a thousand dollars and you mentioned before uh bolster gcs so to to be clear you're not just subcontracting out to all the the subspecialties you kind of own, if you will, those specialties? They're part of your team? So we have uh, a diverse team made up of um, uh, specialists who are responsible for helping the owner better understand their project and delivering, you know, coordinating the professionals and delivering everything according to the to the bolster process. Um, we have, in uh, internally, we have estimation. Uh, we have uh, architects. And we have contractors, and that those types of functions are are starting to expand. Um, we we found that it's in, it's essential to do that so that we can maintain quality and control and create a great user experience for the for the owner. Um, being in control of the pricing and being in control of design and being able to execute on all of this is uh, is essential to you know. To what we're doing. So for a consumer, this this sounds fantastic. It's a this full, full stack experience. You know, you're you're able to you know give this price guarantee or best price guarantee. You know, how are you able to then scale this nationwide? So we 
have just been acquired as a company. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and the company has, the parent co has uh, already a national presence. Um, and they have a unique and very powerful uh, nationwide demand generation platform. And with sufficient uh, margins as a business. So while we're at the same time able to offer the consumer the best price in the market, because of the quality of the construction experience that we're able to deliver for the architects and the contractors, um, we are able to provide them with a easier uh, renovation experience, uh, which means we get, uh, if you will, wholesale pricing, which means we can basically capture more value, which we're able to spend on technology, building a better user experience, and of course, create that virtuous flywheel that enables us to uh, grow the business uh, to a national audience. Right. Now that's, I mean, that's super exciting to, to be acquired and after, you know, as an entrepreneur, hard yeah. work, it's, uh, it's gotta be a pretty tremendous feeling to see yeah, all your hard cool. work come to fruition. Coming up next, we want to get a little bit more personal, uh, with, uh, with your story. Um, you know, we've touched on a few things, but we want to, you know, get, get a little bit more into, you know, what makes you tick and, you know, what sort of helped, you know, you achieve all of these great things. So, um, we'll be right back. Sounds good. You know, if you're like me, you're probably traveling a lot this time of year. And for all those frequent travelers among you, check out Sennheiser's PXC 550 Premium Travel Headphones with 32 hours of battery life, noise cancellation, and stunning Sennheiser sound. It is a perfect travel companion. And you can get it on sale during the holiday season, plus get 25% off when you visit Sennheiser.com and use code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N. Fraser, before we get into, you know, sort of deeper personal questions, uh, I just want to take a moment, you, you know, you described, uh, you know, you've reached a sort of a point of success or the sort of next chapter for, for Bolster. Um, not every sort of point of the Bolster journey so far has probably been an easy one. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of early, more daunting experiences you may have encountered? Sure. Uh, so when we first started, um, it was off the back of a predecessor company that I built in another market that... Um, it's now a, a national company. So this was in Mexico where I was I spent some time there uh, lecturing at a university on entrepreneurship and architecture and stuff. And I, I built a predecessor to Bolster that got adopted by the government and by a few banks as a way to make sure that when banks lent money to consumers, the renovation process was, um, you know, delivered as promised. So we had the financial institutions involved and we had the insurers involved to underwrite everything and so on and so forth. And that's now a it's now a national company in Mexico. And I so I, I founded that and built that up to a certain size and then came to New York in order to launch, you know, the 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 next chapter of that. And I think when you do something like that, what you don't necessarily realize or well, I would say acquiring consumers is just it's 
wholly underestimated by almost everyone who starts a business. Um, you know, if you've got a good idea, you should be screaming it all day long to everyone who will listen um, and thinking, you know, thinking carefully about the type of problem you're solving, the type of consumer you're going after, get, na get as narrow as possible, like narrow cast instead of broadcast as it were. But anyway, I know that contradicts my first point about screaming from the rooftops, but, um, you know. We'll forgive it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I thought of that as I said it. But so when we came here, what we be, we we figured that the client the the kind of end user for this was obviously the consumer but that the customer may well be the banks because we'd been dealing with financial institutions in foreign and that's markets. how it worked in mexico exactly so the idea was for a banking institution and we've got you know home equity lines of credit and heloc uh, you know helocs or, or, or lines of uh, you know uh, home equity loans um that it would be in our interest to lend to the consumer via some kind of you know safe mechanism that made sure that the project was actually you know completed and uh completed on time and on budget because it reduces the risk that the owner gets into trouble therefore can't repay or um or value add or whatever so we had some you know initial conversations with banks and um but that's a it's a very difficult you're chasing an elephant you know you're chasing like and and you've got to find the right people within those organizations and if you find the wrong one forget it though the you know so that that kind of uh proved to be the wrong go-to-market initially and at that same time we're raising uh we're raising capital um from from investors and of course you know coming to coming to new york i we're new here didn't know exactly who you know we weren't part of the ecosystem as it were so we we were looking to raise uh i think it was a million dollars to start with and we were getting offers of like 200 grand here and you know a small consortium here and then one group came along and said we'll do the whole million um and it was you know off we went and i think in hindsight uh, as well as picking your team, picking your investors and knowing their capabilities. Um, and is that a good fit? And I think one of the things that we just didn't realize to start with was the nature of the problem we were trying to solve. So it's very tempting to be like, how big is the home renovation industry? Wow, it's like $300 billion. Okay, how do we get, as, how do you get this idea out there as wide and as fast as possible and gain mass adoption and you know you're almost thinking like your facebook is such a uh, i think now in retrospect a completely erroneous way of thinking about how you start anything don't it, compare yourself and it takes longer than you expect and even when you're out there sometimes you do have to sort of modify the plan slightly and yeah. you need investors that are going to be willing to say okay this i'm comfortable with the idea of you shifting after the fact yeah and we we had uh you know some of our investor group they're all great guys all all um you know there's a fund and a few angels um a couple of high net worth individuals all well-intentioned um you know but there was some insistence on a specific business strategy that as things evolved i knew was wrong and so it became very much about just the financial guarantee but like many kind of innovations those are like the kind of hard nucleus but they require a lot of soft surrounding apparatus to gain adoption and so there was a lot of limitation in what we were 
what initially I was able to do in order to get that core idea into the market. Right. And so we tried different channels, different consumer segments, and you know, different parts of the market. Um, it turns out if you're trying to financially guarantee small projects, the contractors that are typically doing those projects don't have the uh, sufficient financial information to be backed by an insurer. And therefore that kind of, you know, that fell apart. Um, you know, later on, we realized that the amount of information the consumer needed in advance to understand their project was in, was 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 essential, and there was so there was a lot of you know inadequacies in the product early on to to counter for that. Um, there was a huge underestimation in terms of how varied the quality of architecture is in residential in home renovation, and that if you get that wrong, then how do you financially guarantee? the delivery of construction if the design is substandard so it really over time and by the way throughout this we you know we ran out of money at one point um we you know i had to let go of you know half of my team at some point um went off into the, the kind of like the, the wilderness at one point to say you know maybe this isn't the right thing to do and go and do something else i actually raised money for another startup and <laughs> ended up giving it back because I was like, <laughs> I really want to solve this problem. I'm not letting go. But that was like a year of just, you know, uh, it was when the World Cup was on in 2014. So took a so moment to... by that too. Yeah. Just landmark in time based on football. Yeah, sure. British is just a natural kind of, you know, <laughs> marker. So, so it sounds like it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows in those early days. And, and you were, in fact, considering like, is this really the right thing to work on? Like, how did you make it through those times? So I think um I really I really wish we'd I wish we'd known the type of problem we were solving and I think every entrepreneur when you start out should really think about what you're willing to go through to make it work. Um I I got through it because I think I, I mentioned this before I, every time I've tried to get away from working on this problem I've somehow been Pulls drawn back, back in. into it I can't I, I I'm destined to solve this problem it seems that's a horribly I don't know if that's pretentious or not but it just I I I, I tried to get away from it in my youth going into academia came back to construction went to Mexico to become a lecturer and something else got back to this um it's like something know, try, out of a sci-fi novel like you were called upon to do this yeah I just I just feel that like uh I care I really care deeply that this problem gets solved and I don't think anyone else is going to solve it, which it sounds, you know, somewhat, you know, self kind of grandiose or, but it, but it, but it's how I feel. I, I just, I know that if we don't do this, no one else is going to do it. I don't think that sounds bad at all. I think that sounds like someone who's following both their passion and their ability to find what yeah. makes perfect sense for them. Now, think, I'm, I'm a little curious though. You, you come from Scotland, you go and you build this business up in Mexico, you come to America, you build, you build, you know, bolster into this great organization. What, what's the, what's the next sort of country after, uh, after this journey? Well, it's a good question. I think the fact that I'm somewhat, you know, market agnostic in the sense that, um, I would argue that as we grow, we want to look at the top markets in the U S that are, servicing a similar segment of the market so the higher end renovation and then you know so go so go wider as it were um and then go deeper but there's also the possibility of just continuing to go wider um this problem is endemic 
construction is done poorly all over the world and there's markets that need it for lots of different reasons um uh a lot of my team actually were inspired by the fact that when we did this in Mexico, we were doing it for low-income and high-income families at the same time. Um, we like get too into the kind of nuances of this, but it was a it was a line of credit that meant that every single person in Mexico got access to a similar amount of money. And so, one of our first clients there was the CEO of Banco Walmart, who was doing a twenty-five thousand dollar kind of revamp of his, you know, uh, penthouse, the the veranda on his penthouse. Whereas the same 25,000 or second client was being used by a nurse who I think probably earned uh, in a month what he earned in an hour. And she was doing a complete renovation of her home. And yet both of them got the same level of service, the same quality of finish. So it's almost like the, feels like the kind of Coca-Cola of renovation. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, rich or poor, you're getting the same level of, the same quality of something, which, and I think there's something kind of, you know that that's that's quite inspirational for a lot of the people in bolster uh who want to see bolster not just service the affluent homeowner the sophisticated owner they want to see it go downstream and they want to see it go far you know and wide into countries that actually really do need um a more robust transparent construction process um and actually just to touch on that uh, i think last year our model was uh, starting to be used to build a town in Mexico. So, it, you know, it has greater potential than just the renovation of homes. But Earlier uh, in our conversation, you had mentioned how, you know, real estate sort of molds us, not the other way around. And, and I'm just curious, you know, looking back on your life, what what is like the earliest sort of memory you have about that sort of feeling of being at home in a space? Uh, so... I remember being like four or five years old, going and visiting tracked houses with my father, who was in you know development, and seeing right through to the base, like seeing right through to the to the foundations, and looking up and seeing right through all the joists and rafters and all the way through the ceilings, like the idea that you know this is something you can engage with, you can be a part of it internally. We build this around ourselves, um, and then I. I feel like, uh, I mean, how personal do we want to get here in terms of like my affinity to the home? I mean, you're welcome to share as much as you like. I mean, maybe not to the you know level of like the exact smells in the room, but uh, you know, you can f- feel free to go as you know, so, deep as you want. So I think, um, I was I was orphaned as a boy, so I I spent a period of my time where. I I I didn't have a home basically, and not having a home disconnects you from everything. It disconnects you from people. There's no place to store anything. There's no place to go home to when you're struggling. There's nowhere to seek solace. It it really throws you for a complete loop, and I think we underestimate just how essential this. Uh, invention of ours is to our ability to function as a as a society as a as an individual um i really see it as the nexus of pretty much all that we know that's kind of post you know i want to say like post australopithecus africanus that is developed by the idea that we got off the ground to get away from you know the if you're in the savannah or you're in a jungle if you're lying on the ground sleeping at night 
you have a problem. You've got a high risk of being killed, mauled. So you get off the ground. You start building structures in trees. Then you start to expand them out. Then you start to perform. Once you have enough space, you start performing functions there. Then the family structures start to come together, all this. So I just, I think it's uh, deep within us is the home. Um, and so the idea that you can be, you know, we get to every day go out there and help people make their home for their family, you know, something, uh, you know, it's an inspirational process for them and help make sure that it's done successfully. Um, especially when we know how, you know, rampant the, the, the problems are in this industry. It's a, it's a joy and it's a, it's a, it's a privilege. I mean, it's, you know, couldn't, I couldn't do anything else. Well, clearly I've tried, I've tried. I can't, I just can't seem to do anything else. (laughs) (laughs) So Fraser, yesterday, in fact, my, my daughter, I have two daughters. Uh, we were building a doll bed for one of her American girl dolls. And I thought, you know, this is probably, unfortunately, a relatively rare thing to be, doing carpentry work with my seven-year-old. Um, I'm curious, you know, have you come across any of the challenges that the larger technology industry certainly has faced of of creating a quality and inclusion for women in the industry? Yeah, so uh, I also have a daughter. I also, she also has American dolls. Um, yes, the the industry at large has, uh, is not, is not, uh, very well representative of women. The pay gap that exists in the wider uh, economy of, I think it's 79 cents per dollar uh, compared to a man is actually in some instances as as low as 30 cents. Um, uh, As we were going through our acquisition process, um, we have a few uh, anecdotal instances of uh, uh, companies that through their own acquisition process, obviously these things come out into the, you know, out into the light. And there's many instances of of women earning, you know, just significantly less than their male counterparts. In some instances, for doing a more senior or same, but you know, performing more competently. And so uh, that's one issue. And I think the the other thing that our kind of experience and data shows us in terms of like performance metrics, like what makes a good GC. So what we've discovered is what makes a good GC is uh, management capabilities, administrative capabilities, um, some of the more you know uh, sales and marketing, soft skills in terms of dealing with a uh, you know a, a consumer that's in a in a highly emotional transaction, huge value. All all of these are, I think, uh, represent an opportunity for women to actually enter and capture the the renovation market and it just on a personal note i just wish we were dealing with more women daily i mean ev all all almost all contractors and architects are you and know how are how are you five percent uh women how are you promoting that level of equality within your organization um so we uh hire on merit um we are fortunate enough that a lot of what we're doing is, you know, software engineering, um, the the front end acquisition, market response, account executive functions, and, and standard business functions. So, um, and we are, uh, I mean, we're co-founded. My co-founder is 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 you know is a woman. So um, that's uh, and I believe strongly in diversity. I mean, 
um, it's it's uh, I think you have to be active in that and actively conscious of it um, because it, it creates a more in, in inclusive company culture. And I think you're you ultimately perform better. Um, it's very easy to fall into you know groupthinks in all your own if you just stick into one demographic. So um, and I th I so I feel I I. I I just think there's a massive opportunity because it's so often perceived as a man's industry. But the reality is the things that are being done to deliver the quality service that an owner expects um, are completely gender neutral. There's really no reason why this has become, and I think it's because it's typically men who start out in trades and then they come up through the trades and then they might become a... But we have no evidence to suggest that they make better general contractors than those who come in from a, you know, other industry or or a managerial or project management background. Um, in fact, slightly to the contrary. Um, so... And on the whole, I think most people would agree that most contractors to date have not had necessarily a stellar reputation. So time time to give uh, the other gender a turn, perhaps. Yeah, I would agree with that strongly. Yeah. So I, I guess we come to the sort of moment where we ask you to share a, sort of a, a final thought with us that's sort of how you think about things, where you see, uh, where you see yourself going from here. Uh, I... I would love to say I see myself doing lots of really exciting different things and challenges ahead of me, but I actually see myself steering Bolster to becoming a kind of universal solution to, you know, the construction problem of renovation of homes and, and you know, we can go into different markets and different product categories, but I think this is my life's work that I, I want to, you know... Um, if you if you want do you, do you want me to have like parting words in terms of advice for anyone or no because I'm crap at giving no that I think that, okay. that, that definitely that definitely encapsulates <laughs> it you know as as it relates to the to that work and that mission of your life um, how can how can consumers connect with uh, with bolster sure so our website is www.bolster.us. Um, and uh, you can find us on, on Twitter at bolster.us, B-O-L-S-T-E-R-D-O-T-U-S, uh, and Facebook, which is getbolster.com. Um, and uh, yeah, visit the site, learn about renovation, um, learn about how much your project will cost, and, uh, and then uh, make an inquiry if you have a project and we'll get right back to you and, you know talk you through the process help you best way we can Frazier thank you so much for for joining us today and thank you everyone uh, for listening to this great conversation I'm Tom and I'm Scott and this is real estate is your business you've been listening to real estate is your business to suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor email us at real estate biz show at mouthmedianetwork.com keep up with the show on social media at real estate biz show that's real estate b-i-z show episodes available on itunes stitcher and google play along with our website realestateisyourbusiness.com Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.